You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more information about the variety of topics covered on the show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider becoming a monthly donor to support my work and allow it to continue to go on and be free for all to access for as low as 99 cents a month. Visit the Support the Show link on my site's homepage for more information. Hello, everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. Today, I have a ton of fun, interesting mythology stories to share with you, all with K-Pop and or J-Pop act connections. Some loose connections, like, hey, here's the Greek myth that relates to that artist's use of symbolism, with an apple or a snake. Some very overt, like song titles, album titles, band titles. Some music video nods to different myths. All sorts of ways mythology has influenced various K-pop works. And I'm doing that by sharing 17 short stories about these gods and goddesses. Let's make this a game. I won't tell you outright what the stories I tell today have to do with K-pop, J-pop, or C-pop artists. You have to guess. And then at the end, I'll go back and reveal which K-pop groups or symbols I was really thinking of when I decided to tell that story. What is the connection? Let's dive into story one, which is not really one clear story, but just a quick overview of some big characters you should know to get the context here. The main guy, the man about town, and the ultimate player is Zeus. His name actually means bright sky, which is deceptively cute and innocent. And he's actually called Jupiter in Roman mythology. He's enormous. He uses lightning as his scepter. He has super strength and super shape-shifting abilities, which he doesn't use to do anything cool or noble. It's not like he goes undercover to do good deeds on Earth without rabid fans following him or something. No, he's grateful for his shape-shifting because it allows him to go have a bunch of affairs and have his wives not find out it was him because he was incognito. For a ton of the main characters I talk about today, their dad is Zeus. He's also a basically a judge and jury, prosecutor and defense attorney. So if you want to have your case taken to court in this world, you go to Zeus for everything. And he never hears appeals, but he will hear your case at least once and assess it, come to a conclusion. It gives big Queen of Hearts sentence first, verdict afterwards vibes. And although he will listen to any of your cases, he will never listen to an appeal. So his decision is just the final word. Zeus had a child with Hades' sister Demeter, Persephone. Persephone's story we've talked about on previous episodes Remember, she's the one who, long story short, is symbolic of the seasons changing. She's mourning the loss of her daughter, and that's why the winter months are so dark and sad, and and the crops aren't growing, she's having her mourning period. Because when Demeter is so sad, she won't do chores. It's not like when mortals like us would not do chores. Her chores are like preserving the agriculture of the world. So, Hades is actually... Zeus's brother. So if you're following this convoluted family tree, you'll notice that yes, Zeus had a kid with his cousin. Hades runs the underworld. He's the king of the dead. He spends his days just chilling on his throne there next to the queen he abducted, Persephone. His place is guarded by a three-headed dog, 
and he rarely ever leaves his post. Only for the most extravagant parties. So he can go in, steal a bunch of free goodies, and get out. He goes to these big lavish events just when he wants to bring home some trinkets. He's basically the person who goes to the party just to grab the free refreshments and then leaves. Hades has a bit in common with Voldemort, because people are actually quite afraid to just say his name. Sometimes then they just refer to Pluto or Pluton, which means the wealthy one or the unseen one. And actually his name is just always Pluto or Pluton in Roman myths. The gates of hell are guarded by this three-headed dog named, you'll recognize this name from a recent K-pop release, Cerberus. Prometheus is this guy who saw how awfully Zeus treated mortals, and so he stole fire, literally stole his fire, to give to the humans. So he's punished by, long story short, different characters try to convince each other. One thing leads to another. It's basically a telephone game of death to see who should chain him up to a rock as punishment. Anyway, one of the people in that story is Kratos, who is brothers with Zelos. Kratos embodies brute strength, and Zelos is the god of jealousy and rivalry. With me so far? So we've got Zeus running the show. But Hades runs the show in the underworld with his mourning wife Persephone. Then you've got brothers Zelos and Kratos. Lastly, Hera. You're going to hear a lot about Hera. Just like you'll hear throughout these stories that turns out the main character's dad is Zeus. You're also going to hear constantly that Hera was the one who sought revenge. She is incredibly vengeful and jealous of anyone who not even just is with her man, but is she perceives as a threat for beauty or some other reason. She is the wicked stepmom from a Disney movie, only with more gore in the stories. Now that you've got the lowdown on some main characters, let's get to the story of Ambrosio. Ambrosio's story is the story of the very first vampire. He was just your average human. He used blood as his ink when writing his poems, as one does. He goes to this fortune teller of sorts who sees a lot of bad stuff in his future, so he's very nervous about that, but, but he seems calmed a bit by the presence of a goddess named Selene. Apollo is enraged. He's like, how on earth is this weird mortal getting a goddess to date him? So Apollo puts a curse on Ambrosio. Somehow, for some reason, Ambrosio is like, I can take cover from this curse and seek protection from Hades. He's the man who will comfort me. I don't know what was going through his head there. Maybe he thought, well, since whenever anyone enters the underworld, they can't leave. I'm de facto protected by Hades because... Apollo can't get me down there. I don't know. But anyway, Hades, the one who always tries to get free goodies at parties and has that what's-in-it-for-me approach to life, says he will protect Ambrosio if he does him a favor. Go kill Artemis and bring back her shiny silver bow, like a bow and arrow bow. So basically he's holding Ambrosio's soul captive until he gets this bow back from him. Ambrosio thinks of something Hades did not and is like, hey, I could get the bow back. I could steal it from her without killing her. So he tries that. Artemis finds out he stole it and punishes him with a curse of her own. 
But you know those times when you think you might kind of enjoy a bit seeing an arch nemesis's downfall, but then you actually see it and it hits you differently? And it's like, careful what you wish for. What happened here is kind of like that, where Artemis cursed him, but because he'd already been cursed by Apollo, now he's doubly cursed. So now this is visibly painful. He is doubly cursed, and it shows. So now she's like, wow, I can't believe I inflicted even more pain on this pain-stricken dude. So she feels apologetic and is like, I'll make it up to you. You love writing your poems with blood as your ink? I'll give you an endless supply of blood as your ink. I'll give you fangs so that you can seek out prey and constantly draw blood when you bite into it. And that's how the first vampire came to be. Story 2. Narcissus. We've talked about this story before, too. This is the one I always crack up over telling, because imagine you're dating someone who you see as the ultimate love of your life. Then one day, you're shocked to find out, OMG, I've just been dating myself the whole time, looking at my reflection. That's it. That's wild. But that's what happened here. He fell in love with himself, and what's extra funny is this other character, Echo, has been cursed and can't talk for herself. So all she can do is repeat is Echo back whatever people by her have said when Narcissus is obsessed with his reflection, but he doesn't fall in love with her because he views her as just too boring. Which is extra funny because Narcissus seemingly fell in love with himself, but he can't stand to hear himself talk apparently because his words are echoing back at him, and he finds the echo boring, apparently. Anyway, he gets turned into a flower, so he has to be careful what he wishes for, and now can stare at his reflection in the river for eternity. Number three, the apple of discord. This is my favorite story, I think, because it is just so reality TV. It is so extra this is such a bravo-ready situation. One war god named Ares has this super, super annoying little sister named Eris. Eris tags along with him on his chariot rides and is just super gleeful over the scenes of violence they ride past. She's viewed as just so unpopular and annoying and is also characterized as super ugly. So Eris is not invited to what's being billed as the most elaborate, wonderful wedding party for Peleus and Thetis. And one of the morals here has got to be that never underestimate the anger of a little sister. She seeks revenge on the party she was not invited to by causing chaos as sisters do. There's a golden apple on the banquet table there, and she steals it to write to the fairest on it. Kind of like if you put a label on... A container before you put it in the office fridge so people know it's yours. But she did that by just writing to the fairest, not saying who the fairest is, threw the apple back on the table and hid. Then three different guests end up reaching for the apple and fighting over it, thinking, to the fairest, that's me. It's addressed to me. Those three women are Aphrodite, Athena, and, of course, Hera. So the three of them are fighting they look up to Zeus to be the judge of their situation. And he basically says, look, I know I'm usually the judge and the jury and everything, but I'm off the clock, I'm at a wedding, I'm not getting involved. So he passes the buck to 
this prince named Paris. So then the three women divert their attention to Paris and bribing him. So Hera's like, hey, if you pick me and say I'm the fairest, I'll give you power. Athena's like, I'll give you wisdom. And Aphrodite is like, I'll give you Queen Helen of Sparta as like his prize. So this awful dude, Paris, choosing between power, wisdom, or a person, picks the person. So basically this Queen Helen is abducted as part of the deal. So Paris, for causing the abduction, basically is credited with starting the Trojan War. Yes, the war started over a petty fight over an apple and a vengeful little sister. Story number four, the sirens. The sirens are pictured most often in media as mermaids. Technically in this story, they're actually half bird, half woman, not half fish, half woman. But anyway, these three sisters are known for sitting on these rocks in the water, sinning so enchantingly that they leave any sailors who cross them, dazed and confused to the point where they crash their ship into the rocks and drown. It's very inventive. It's not kill them with an awful singing voice. It's kill them with a singing voice that's too good. Odysseus, at one point, steers past and orders his men to be aware that the sirens are going to try to kill them. So he says, guys, shove wax up your ears, don't listen to their beautiful sound, and tie me to the ship so I can't fling myself off it and run over to them or something. He tried to stop himself from doing something stupid. It did not work. He is so enchanted by this song, even with the precautions taken to not hear it, that he tears himself out of being tied up. He rips the mast he was tied to off of the ship and tries to throw himself overboard, although the other sailors are able to restrain him before it's too late. And that's the story of the one time the sirens were unable to be successful at killing sailors. Number five, Psyche. Aphrodite, goddess of beauty, is always super jealous of other pretty people. And Psyche is gorgeous. So she sends her son, Eros, to go pierce this beautiful woman with one of his arrows. So he dutifully goes to do that, but he misses. So while he's there, he ends up actually falling in love with Psyche. And Psyche is able to very easily overlook the fact he just tried to kill her, and they are happy in love. This is the period in the Greek myth timeline, where it officially was the rule of the road that you're not allowed as a god or goddess to marry a mortal, unless the god or goddess stays invisible. So Psyche could never actually see her husband. So one day after she settled into married life, she invites her sisters over and the conversation is just your typical joking conversation among sisters and they're kind of just teasing her and making fun of the situation and putting doubts into her head though, jokingly, but still provoking nagging suspicions and doubts in Psyche, saying, maybe he's not showing his face because he's really ugly. Maybe he actually doesn't like you or want to see you. Stuff like that. So it really weighs on her, and one night after that talk, she can't take the suspense anymore. She lights a candle and goes to see what her husband looks like while he's sleeping. When she does that, she broke the rule, so everything disappears. He disappears, the castle disappears, and the story basically ends where Psyche is known now to spend her days wandering the woods. 
In some tellings of this story, Aphrodite is said to have actually punished Psyche by turning her into an owl. And that's why owls say, who? Who? Because she's questioning who she really loves. So now her life's work is basically spent swooping into rooms and whispering advice to women in her shoes. So when they're having conversations, like the one she had with her sisters, she will whisper things like, don't do it girl, don't marry this person, not right for you, it's a trap. Seemingly, I think she's really trying to help, but doesn't realize the particular situation that got her into this mess. She's warning them off of marriage and certain crushes, basically to stop them from her fate, but I don't think she really registers why they're not going to have the same fate if they know the rule about not looking at their immortal lovers, but anyway. Number six, Icarus. Although I want to actually spend more time on the story of Icarus, a different character with, I would argue, a more fun story, a funny one, in a dark way. And we have talked about Icarus on the show before, Remember, he's the one who, to escape a labyrinth, was given wings, but they were made of wax, melted when he flew too close to the sun. It's kind of a metaphor of don't get on your high horse to the point where you get carried away. Your ego gets the best of you, and you suddenly face consequences you could have realized were on the horizon if you would stop to be humble about it. Now, as for Icarus... He went with his daughter, and actually, they were the first people to welcome Dionysus to Attica when he arrived. So to thank them, Dionysus, the god of wine, taught him his winemaking hacks, all the ways to make and talk about wine. So Icarus spent his days teaching the townspeople, too, and he would go around town teaching the tricks of the trade that Dionysus had taught him. The dark, tragic humor of it all is that the townspeople got drunk for the first time. And because they'd never been drunk before, they didn't understand what was happening, that sense of letting go of their inhibitions. They did not know what was going on. It was such a foreign feeling to them. So they thought, oh my gosh, he just tricked us and poisoned us. So this angry mob teamed up and killed Icarus. Icarus' daughter's dog actually sniffed out and found his dead body. So the moral of the story is the dog saved the day and is a very good boy. And he was given a star called Sirius by Dionysus as a reward for sniffing out the body. Meanwhile, Dionysus wants to punish this murderous mob, and so he started a drought. And he made Icarus a constellation next to the dog Sirius. More on Dionysus. He is also the god of things like prosperity and ecstasy. And he's basically, his role is not just about the actual literal wine, but the actual just abstract concepts of letting go of your inhibitions, reaching this new level of I don't care what people think, I'm not going to care about my surroundings, I'm just basking in this moment without worrying about judgment, and allowing people to reach those new highs emotionally, is what he is most admired for. And he really does have quite the posse of admirers who follow him everywhere. He is groupies. There are tons of stories I could share about Dionysus. There was the time he was kidnapped by pirates who mistook him for this prince. There is the time he got sewed onto Zeus's leg. There's the time Hera tried to kill him 
because he was a product of her husband's infidelity. And that's actually why Dionysus gets to raise these mountain nymphs, because Zeus gave them over to him for security purposes. Yet despite his reasons to be paranoid, he lives a pretty good life. And actually to this day, the term Dionysian is a real word. It refers to the spontaneous and emotional parts of human nature. Some hymns are actually called dithyrams, a fun word referring to a very specific type of poetry named in Dionysus's honor. Number eight, Medusa. Medusa is one of the three Gorgons, a group of sisters who were once all beautiful. Medusa is the youngest of them. Again, I guess the theme here is little sisters that stir up trouble. So Medusa hooked up with Poseidon and Athena got real jealous. And so Athena was so jealous she turned Medusa into the ugliest person imaginable with all the snakes for hair and things like that. There's an episode of Spongebob where Patrick says he can cheer Spongebob up with a story called The Ugly Barnacle. And he says, once there was an ugly barnacle, he was so ugly, everyone died. The end. It did not cheer Spongebob up. That's kind of what happened here. Medusa was turned so ugly, people would stare at her and basically become petrified if they didn't just die. And when Medusa's sisters protested what Athena did, Athena turned them ugly too. Poseidon, the person Medusa had an affair with, later on actually just cut off her head and was the one who would use it as a weapon, turning his enemies into stone by shoving her head in their line of sight. I would love a Bravo-style reality show just about the period of time they were dating. What led to the head getting cut off? Quite the roller coaster they went on. Number nine, Python. When Hera found out about yet another woman, Leto, who was going to give birth to Zeus's kids, she sought revenge with Python, unleashing a giant snake at her. Zeus helped protect his wife, got her into a safe place to give birth, and she gave birth to Apollo and Artemis safely. When Apollo grew up, the protective island he was born on became a sacred place to him. And eventually, he actually killed Python himself with his golden arrows. There is a really interesting scientific angle here, too, because Python means rot in Greek, and rotten stuff like mold breeds in the dark. So for Apollo to kill Python with a golden arrow, a beam of light, feels very fitting and scientifically accurate. The temples that Apollo, when he grew up, built in this area became the first known hospitals and the very first prescription given in a hospital was then called hydrotherapy aka bathing i wonder if all the celebs these days know about that number 10 pandora's box zeus this weird player dude that he is was probably bouncing back and forth between girls so he probably forgot about pandora's wedding and that's why he gave her just a box, because he had no time to decide what else to get her. I don't know. But anyway, he gave her a box as a wedding gift. And he said, but don't open it ever. Yeah, he's awful. One day, Pandora couldn't help herself, did open the box, and unleashed a bunch of curses, irreversibly. To this day, you may hear the phrase, you opened up Pandora's box, referring to, you just unleashed a series of bad events. Number 11, Artemis. Artemis is actually called 
Diana in Roman mythology. She's the goddess of childbirth and hunting and nature and a bunch of stuff. And the moon, she's the one with the fancy silver arrows. She rides a silver chariot. She also has the power to control the tides. She's pretty cool. My favorite thing is when this peeping Tom she caught got turned into a stag. She doesn't mess around. She also is not afraid to severely punish those who kill more animals than what they can eat. Wild animals are sacred to her. She also is like a fairy godmother of sorts. In some storytellings, at least, she's basically the person who helps young lovers go have their hidden meetups. She'll provide a shadow for them to hide in, or she'll make up a hiding space for them. Artemis will provide the protection they need to keep meeting up without getting caught. Number 12, Iris, the rainbow goddess and peacemaker. She is the assistant, basically, of Hera, tending to all of her needs and instructions. But one day, she made history by becoming the first person to ever get Hera to shut up, to stop scolding mid-scold. Her energy is that pure. Her nature is that sweet and lovable and empathy-inducing. It's kind of like Puss in Boots in Shrek, the big-eyed stare. When she turns on that charm, it was enough to wilt even the toughness of Hera. Number 13, Ajax. He is one of the most powerful warriors, and he uses the whole mast of a ship as his sphere in combat. He feels really slighted, though, by Odysseus, because Odysseus was like, Hey, Achilles, you have this cool set of golden armor. You should let a noble and impressive fighter borrow it. And they were like, great idea. Let's give the armor to Patroclus. And Ajax basically went out of his mind with jealousy and annoyance. Number 14, Aphrodite. Goddess of love and beauty, known as Venus in Roman mythology. She was actually literally born out of murder. Long story short, Cronus killed his dad, Uranus, threw him into the sea, and then somehow the blood of Uranus drifted into the sun. I guess it evaporated, and it turned into foam that gave birth to Aphrodite. And Aphrodite literally means foam born. So she was born out of murder and never had any parents. She would be a very interesting reality show character, too, because she keeps having affairs and is forgiven by her husband. She has a ton of kids with different dads. One of them is Zeus, of course. And she really made headlines. She decided to marry this guy who everyone considers the ugliest among them. They think that he is just way below her league. Number 15, Nine Muses. These nine are Zeus's daughters, of course, and they all have a very unique theme that they represent, related to the arts and music and healing. There's Cleo, whose thing is history, Erato, whose thing is love, Euterpe, who is into lyric poetry, Calliope is into epic poetry, Talia is into comedy, Urania, LOL, is into astronomy and astrology, Terpsichore is into dance, Melpomene is into tragedy, <laughs> And polyhymnia is into both music and geometry. It's kind of like when a family's giving out Halloween candy in a just-take-one box, and the night is almost over, so 
you just grab the most random collection of candy corn or whatever was left behind. That's polyhymnia. She basically grabbed music and geometry and was like, okay, I guess I get both. Number 16, Cassiopeia. This woman, Andromeda, was chained to this rock as a sacrifice. But then she got rescued by Perseus. They later got married. That's just an interesting aside. That woman's mom is Cassiopeia. She became a constellation after her death and is basically a constellation characterized as someone full of themselves who bragged about looking good way too much. And she actually sacrificed her kid to Poseidon, the sea monster. Imagine that reality show. Poseidon and his ex-lover Medusa raising that kid. Actually, one time, Cassiopeia had gotten carried away, bragging about how good-looking she is, to the point that it drove Poseidon so insane that he, in a fit of rage, ended up just, oops, stomping his feet and destroying a kingdom. Lastly, Venus and Cupid. Just an interesting thing to note. Venus actually is not original at all. She has no original stories, no backstory tied to her. Over time, the people telling these myths just started making her the de facto Aphrodite of Roman myths. So she actually is basically just Aphrodite, but they gave the stories a new name. Cupid is most often portrayed as Venus's son, and the god of desire and all types of love. In Roman myths, actually, he and Psyche are together. I want to talk about one more thing before I reveal who these stories were about, and that is Pleiades. Pleiades is this constellation of seven daughters of Titan. The backstory varies about how they became a constellation. One theory is that Zeus turned them into stars so that this creepy dude Orion could stop pursuing them, but then Orion just turned into a star, I guess, so he could still pursue them. Each individual daughter actually could have her own side story here. You've got Electra, who is mourning Troy. Then there's Merope, who is so ashamed that she fell in love with a mortal. Some of these characters are probably like, I feel ya over that. There should be a support group for these gods and goddesses that have to come to terms with the fact they love us mere mortals. Alright, here's your big reveal. First, we talked about Hades, Zelos, Kratos, Persephone, Ambrosio, Zeus, all the big players. Hera, that was all about both in general just setting up context for today's stories, but also I was thinking of Vix's story. In their music video universe, Leo is often seen as the character in the band associated with Ambrosio. Ravi might be Hades because he just kind of wears the crown and sits on a throne dramatically. You've got the River of Sticks referenced and all this other stuff we've already talked about in the Vic's dedicated episode of the show. And of course they named their album trilogy Hades, Zelos, and Kratos. Narcissus, that story, is a nod to the theme in SF9's Enough music video and the album Narcissus, as well as Holland's mini-album Narci. The Apple of Discord just is a nod to all the times there's this Apple symbolism in G-Friend's work, BTS's work, etc. There's the religious backstory to that symbolism, but I thought the Greek mythology version of the backstory was noteworthy too. The Sirens refers to Sunmi Sun Siren, 
okay, look, I know that's a stretch, and that that comeback for her was about a literal alarm siren, but I really wanted to tell that goofy story about sirens, so I'm drawing the connection anyway. It has big you-can't-sit-with-us energy, so it's relevant to Sunmi's work. Psyche is another one just broadly applicable to K-pop artist work, and of course it was the name of Juhani's mixtape. The myth really does tie into the real definition of Psyche outside of myths, about this character representative of our doubts, the nagging voice in our mind questioning what's really going on and how to address it. Icarus is part of BTS's music video universe, especially Black Swan, in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Dionysus is the name of a BTS song as well. Medusa is the name of one of Joel and Sai's best bops. Yes, I'm talking about C-pop, J-pop, and K-pop acts today. Pandora's Box is the name of an NCT 127 song. It's really funny, actually, because they use it in a romantic, cute song about how being in a relationship with you opened up Pandora's Box, which I kind of get that it's like, a romance is having unintended consequences, even if it's a lovely romance. It can then open up the door for haters or frustration among people you're now ignoring, something like that. Then again, I think it's always funny how NCT does this a lot, where they kind of just redefine and make a phrase mean whatever they want it to. For example, when they sweetly sing on Angel, I'll be your morning star, it sounds cute, but Morningstar is also a nickname for Lucifer, so do what you want with that information. Artemis refers to the J-pop girl group Wings of Artemis. Iris refers to the J-pop girl group Iris. Ajax is the name of a K-pop boy band. Aphrodite is the name of a song from the K-pop group B.I.G. Nine Muses is the name of a K-pop girl group. Cassiopeia is the name of TVXQ's fandom. And Venus and Cupid refers to the girl group Hello Venus and their fandom, which is called Hello Cupid. Python is another one referring to just a ton of K-pop groups, what the origin of sneak symbolism is. Like I said in my Murakami episode about his books, Myths are kind of the original template for all sorts of stories. So in any story, the symbolism, you could probably trace back to mythology. So snakes are a prime example, and you see them in Monster X's work and many other artists. Then there is Pleiades, the constellation of seven characters who each kind of have their own subplot, you could say. That is just something... I think BTS might be nodding to, because the number seven and each of the seven members' individual stories in their music video universe are really important. So I could picture them drawing more mythology inspiration from Pleiades using that as a reference guide in some way, and wouldn't be surprised if one of their future projects features or nods to more overtly that constellation. I have a lot more mythology stories I could share today. Like I said, myths are kind of the root of all symbolic origin stories, so maybe we will have a part two someday. But that is all for today's episode. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you listen and subscribe. Thank you all, as always, for listening to my show, and I will talk to you all again very, very soon.